Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that uh, tackles some pretty tough topics. We've done a lot of topics from women who've spent time in prison to the sports, domestic violence issues. Today we're talking about a topic that a lot of people may not have heard of. And um, if they have heard of it, they've probably had an experience where they want to share it. So we do want you to phone in. We have with us um, a pretty important person today. How's that, Tracy? (laughs) 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 This is Tracy Parker joining me, and she has a lot of experience with supervised visitation. And I think what I'm going to do, Tracy, is I'm going to let you uh, talk about it. Um, I, I, I want you to explain exactly what you did for Safe Havens. Okay. So uh, I ran the Safe Havens Visitation Program um, in Kent, Washington, and it was actually a federally funded program out of the Office on Violence Against Women from Mm -hmm. the VAWA um, Act. And uh, it was developed. Yeah, yeah, the Violence Against Women Act, sorry. Um, It was developed because, well, supervised visitation has been around for a long time for CPS where it's looking at child abduction or child abuse or fitness of parents. Um, And in the 1980s, go ahead. When we say child supervision, we're talking about somebody official, somebody from Child Protective Services or somebody from court, somebody from somewhere who observes the interaction between the child Uh, and the adult. Exactly. Observes the interactions and takes notes uh, depending on what their role is. Well, in the 1980s, when family law cases started happening a lot more, fathers' rights groups kind of developed uh, more of that kind of, quote, high-conflict family stuff was going on. Uh, A lot of domestic violence advocates started helping battered women get supervised visitation in their cases to keep them safe when they were ordered to, uh, when their, their partners were ordered to, or their abusers were ordered to have access to the kids. Well, the problem was that was happening, um, but they were using they were looking at it through the child welfare lens, which is a very different lens. They were looking at the same, like I said, they were looking at parent, fitness of parents and kind of blatant child abuse stuff. They were really looking at what watching for the possibility of reuniting the family. So OVW, Office on Violence Against Women, comes along and says, well, what what would be different if we actually looked at supervised visitation through the lens of domestic violence? Uh, we, we'd be looking for a lot, uh, something very different. We, we're looking at coercive control and what that looks like and how children are used to continue abusing the the survivor. And so they funded this demonstration project, and we were one of those four demonstration sites. So because of that, we got, we were, of the four demonstration sites, the Kent site was the only one that actually started as a planning grant. So we got to learn from all the struggles the existing sites were having trying to implement this new lens. We started from that lens. So uh, we were very transparent all the way through that we are not here to reunite families. We're here for safety. And every and we never took the stance of neutrality in our program. We always uh, just stated clearly that we're assuming there's a risk, and so we're watching for anything that could be a compromise to anybody's safety. It so it really was a really different kind of, approach. Yeah. And when you said here in Kent, did you talk about Washington State, Kent, uh, yes. where we both are, as a matter of fact? Uh, it might mm-hmm. be different in other states, but um, the project in Kent, Washington, is what, the one that you're talking about, was one of the first yes. four. Um, yes. So if you've had experience with um, domestic violence and child supervision or child custody, give us a call. It's 646 378 0430. 646 378 Well, Tracy, it sounds like the plan is a good one. It sounds like, yeah, if there's a safety risk, let's get somebody there that can can supervise this. And so there's either a record or another person there so that somebody isn't likely to hurt their child in front of them. But supervisors 
act in a number of different ways, don't they? I mean, yeah. they can either just transport a child from, say, moms to dads or from one parent to the other parent or right. so that the parents don't encounter each other. Or they can go and transport the child to the other parent, the non-custodial parent, and just sit in the background and watch. Or the non-custodial parent is actually going to a facility where the supervisors right. are permanently stationed. And uh, my understanding that in order to avoid uh, potential violence, they have the, the parent dropping off the child come 15 minutes before the other parent comes. And then the same thing in reverse when they bring, you know, when they're, it's time to pick the child back up. So there's three different capacities. Is there anything else? Have I, have I missed one? Yeah. So one thing I want to say about that, the, the dropping off, we did, that, we did on-site visitation and, uh, and supervised exchanges is what you're talking about when it's the drop-off pickup. But uh -huh. the way that you described it, where the parent with the child comes first, is the dangerous way. That's the way that's not taking uh, domestic violence into consideration. Um, the way that you look at it through the domestic violence lens is the person who is the abuser is always the one that comes first because you need to know where that person is when the other person comes to the area. So we have the perpetrator, the abuser, come uh, and be in the building 15 minutes before the scheduled drop-off time. And if he's not there, and I say he because the probably 90% of our clients were male um, abusers. And so he comes to the building, and then if he's not there, we call her and say, don't come anywhere near, we don't know where he's at. Um, and once he's in the building, then she can arrive from a different entrance, the way we had it set up. She comes to a different side of the building. We bring the child from uh, from her to the father. Then we let the mother go, and when she's and then ten minutes later, after she's had time to leave the area, we then let the child and the father go. And then on the reverse, still the father comes back first with the child. He's in the building before the mother comes back. Because our goal was to keep. The, so a big shift in our focus was to keep the adult victim safe as well. The, our focus was not just the child. Yeah. Well, and in fact, I've read plenty of news reports where that 15-minute system that you're talking about was uh, not very successful. I mean, there have been several things in the right. news about violence. Uh, Absolutely. There have been several women killed during that that time period. Yeah. Um, so we had a murder still... here in Washington State. We in Seattle, we had a murder. That's one of the reasons Kent got the the demonstration grant because the Office on Violence Against Women was so impressed that anybody was willing to try it again. But there was a visitation center here in Kent, in Seattle that um, did it the way the the wrong way, where he had dropped the child off after he'd had her for an overnight visit. The woman's name was Melanie Edwards, and their little girl Carly um, was four. Carl Edwards dropped off the child and then left, supposedly, and then the mom comes to pick up the child from the center. And as she's walking back, to, as she gets in her car uh, after picking up her child, Carl was outside in a rented vehicle that nobody recognized, and he walked over and shot them. Uh, he shot them. Uh, Melanie four times, and the bullets actually went through her and hit the child. They both died on the scene, and then he took off and ended up committing suicide in California a couple of days later. Um, so, yes, yes, it, if you're not looking at everything that's happening, it's not just in your presence, it's outside, it's anywhere in the vicinity, um, because this is the only access that a, a really committed abuser has the only place he knows where his his victim might be, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, he's guaranteed that she's going to be there. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. So, and that was the other thing I was going to ask you. You really touched on that. I, it seems like when you were t describing the supervised visitation from Child Protective Services, you were talking mm -hmm. about, you know, being careful about the safety for the child. But in mm -hmm. domestic violence situations, you also have to be worried about domestic violence for the other parent. Right, um, right. That, that lens you're talking about. Um, right, so and so for us that meant 
really even everything that he was saying during the visits could be a message to the mother, uh, could be a way of getting information. So we had a lot of behavioral guidelines in place that we fully explained to them and told them this is what you can't talk about that. You can't do this. You can't do that. Right. It, it, um, it was challenging and, but I think the, the best thing that we did was we were very clear about that. We, we didn't make up things as we went along. We were really clear up front about this is what we're watching for. Anything you do, we're going to assume there could be something more to it. So, mm-hmm. And when you say um, anything you do, you don't necessarily mm-hmm. mean just overt acts, you, uh, you know, because in domestic violence there's a lot of kind of covert action that other yes. people not, might not recognize as a, uh, an attempt to control or, tim- or intimidate. Um, so yeah. you're watching the whole thing. So how did mm-hmm. your pro- how many did your program serve, and who did you report to? So we had over the eight years of being open, um, we served about 450 families coming, actually getting all the way through the intake process and getting accepted into the program. We had a waiting list from year one on. Um, we could never meet the need. We had probably another, I'd say, 800 orders that came to us where nobody ever called. Um, nobody followed through, like they got an order from the court to use us, but we never heard from one party or the other. We we had about 100 a year of those. Um, so we, we had visits on evenings and weekends. Um, we had uh we, we what we did we didn't report to anybody we 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 believe that copious note taking is ridiculous um we're not what we did was we had a checklist of here's the things that we're watching for and if those things occurred and we checked it off and then we also had a checklist for how we intervene there was levels of intervening we always tried first to just do a nonverbal redirect like just make eye contact and shake our head or shake our finger to try to keep the kid out of it as much as possible. Um, But if that didn't work, then, of course, we would verbally redirect. And then from there on, it would be like if we had to call for assistance or if we had to stop the visit um, or call the police or whatever, it just increased levels. So we had this kind of checklist form that we used. If we anything we wrote was really only if there was a safety concern. So if the there was a veiled threat that was made or something stated that we weren't sure about, we would document that. So we would never we we were really clear we're not assessing. We are here for safety and we're not going to say that anybody is a good parent or a bad parent because that was not our role and we didn't believe that one hour of supervised visits can account for somebody being a good parent. It's a superficial setting. We're the ones uh, providing all the toys and activities. There's no responsibility. You just come in and visit your kid and go. And if you can't hold it together for an hour, then there's some serious issues. So we we were really clear that this is no way to, to determine whether somebody is safe or not for unsupervised access to their kid. Well, in doing some research, it looks to me like a lot of the supervised visitation is provided uh, around the country, is provided or supervised anyway by the courts. That's not, is that the way it is in Washington? No, in fact, it's not. There usually, if it's a, if it's supervised by the, dependency cases, are often supervised by uh, by the court. But family law cases are generally private providers or or organizations affiliated with the court. The court may order that they may have a close relationship where they they order to you know um, ABC or whatever the visitation center is. They'll order to them, but they. And they expect reports from them, but they don't fund it. It's not a it's not a court program. Um, so that in Washington State, I think it's pretty common across the country. Actually, it's just mostly private providers. In Washington State, there is no legislation, no certification pro- process. Anybody, anywhere, anytime, can just hang their shingle and say they do supervised visitation. Um, they don't have to have any training in anything. It's it's pretty concerning. And I've had 
perpetrators bring me the notes from their other their previous service providers to tell me how uh great they are and to show me you know why their wife is crazy and um and i'm it's been very concerning and and notes where we've seen these documented lengthy pages of notes by another visit supervisor about how great this dad is and they're they're documenting what what they're documenting we're we're seeing the battering and the stuff that they're describing and they're not seeing it at all for instance like going and getting a card to for the children to give to the mom um on his behalf and the supervisor just hand does that and agrees and there's just no understanding about what that could mean yeah yeah exactly um, and in fact, it could mean, see, I'm still here, and you're not safe. Mm-hmm. You know. You're, mm-hmm. you're well, for a instance, there's an example. Right, there's an example of a guy that brought flowers to his ch- to, for uh, to the visit for his, the child to pass along to the mother, and he'd been telling the woman for years, the only time you will get flowers from me is when you're about to die, and hey. so he actually incorporated this child into his threat. Right. And of course, the so, child doesn't know anything about it, and is, no, you know, no, being right. manipulated, and, you know. And later yeah. on, when that child becomes an adult, I mean, what must they go through if they realize that they inadvertently participated in this stuff? Exactly. Uh, it, yeah, it's mind-boggling. Well, um, you have written a, a study. It's a, a little older now, but I mm-hmm. uh, really enjoyed reading it in preparation for the show. And the study is in a magazine in and in a journal called uh, Violence Against Women. And mm-hmm. this came out in 2008, and yeah. you titled it Danger Zone, Battered Mothers and Their Families in Supervised Visitation. Mm-hmm. In that study, you talked about this uh misconception that some of the non-custodial parents have that you're going to evaluate whether or not they're good parents. Right. And I, it was kind of funny because in the study you mentioned one father who kept saying how wonderful he was and he kept interacting very well with his child and then when he, fo- he found out that you didn't make any evaluation of whether he was a good parent. Mm-hmm. He started ignoring the kid. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep, yep. It was very frustrating, and then eventually he just disappeared. He stopped coming altogether. So, um, and we saw that quite a bit, unfortunately. I I I wish I could say that. I I'm sorry. Sometimes I sound jaded, but I wish I could say that uh, that the majority of the fathers that we served were actually coming to visit their kids. But really, the majority of them were coming because they had a right to visit their kids which is a very mm-hmm. different goal. Um, so not to say they don't love their kids. I don't know. You know, I'm, that's not mine to determine. But the way that, uh, but that wasn't what was expressed in, in the way they interacted. Um, it, it was really about getting around the rules. Um, we, I, there were, I've had so many conversations with visiting fathers to say, you know, your visit would be a lot better if you stopped trying to figure out what we're doing and just focused on your kid. Um, so, or kids that, I mean, they're just some terrible things. For instance, one kid comes in, we had a guy that was visiting, and the, and the two kids were coming with well, the older child. Often older children don't want to come, and they'll come in just to monitor their their younger sibling because they, they're worried about the safety of their younger sibling. And once they started to trust us, they would then say, well, they don't want to go in the visit. They just let their kid brother go in by themselves or kid sister. And we had one guy, the little six-year-old comes in without the 13-year-old sister, and um, and he says, where's your sister? And she says, well, she doesn't want to come in. And he then just says, then I'm not having a visit, and says, take the, six, take the other one out. And you had a six-year-old standing there whose father just says, I don't want to see you. If I can't see your sister, I don't want to see you. Just ridiculous, horrible things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just awful. You know, I wish sometimes um, I encounter so many people, you probably do too, that have never studied the domestic violence um, phenomenon, that have never really yeah. paid any attention to it. And the assumptions that people have are the assumptions that normal people have, that you can be reasonable yeah. to somebody or that if somebody bought exactly. you flowers it's a, as a gift. And yet mm-hmm. the, the things that really happen with an abuser are so, I mean, it's almost like somebody wrote a book for them. 
You know, they, yeah. they do the, you know, she's crazy. That's their first mm-hmm. response. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and yeah. in every single case, I've never heard of a single case where he doesn't come out saying she's crazy. Um, yeah. You know, the whole idea about you know seeing the children because they have that right, and by golly, nobody's going to take that right from them. Instead of saying, "I want to see my children because I they're my children and I love them," and the, there are so many things that you can just cut, you know, like you can set your clock to of what these guys mm-hmm. are going to come up with. And yet so yeah. many people, even people in authority and in the courts, don't understand it. They don't get it. And I have a hard time understanding why it's so hard to see. Yeah, well, that's a big conversation. I don't expect you to have an answer for that. It's just my frustration. It's just, it you is know, I mean, very you... frustrating, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, go ahead. I re- I remember years ago, um, there was a physician in a place where I lived. My husband was a physician as well. Mm-hmm. And this physician had just been found guilty in two different counties of molesting his teenage daughter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know as well as I do that it's hard to get a conviction at all, let alone in two separate counties, one he yeah. did and one he worked in. Yeah. So to me, you know, there was some pretty stiff evidence against this person. And we were at a social event, and everyone there was talking about, oh, poor Dr. X. You know, he's Mm -hmm. in prison. And this one person said, well, you know, I've seen him with his daughter, and she just didn't like him. And they all were like, oh, well, that explains why she did this. And I'm thinking, if he was abusing her, why would you think she would like him? Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this doesn't make uh, sense. And it's the same same thing with the the kids who don't want to see their parent. They're you know they're not yeah. custodial parents. They're fathers for the most part. And then just yeah. like the she's crazy, and you know they come up with the parental alienation stuff. Well, mm-hmm. the only reason they wouldn't want to see me is because you know she's poisoned their minds against me. Right. And it's right. astounding to me how nobody connects the dot. Hello, if somebody treats you badly, why would you want to see them? Right, right, and, and and they, you know, some of the kids do want to see their dad, but they're they're they they're afraid and they feel very conflicted because their dad pumps them for information about their mom, um, which is a really hard thing on kids. I'm a grown woman, and I would find it really difficult to tell one of my parents. I can't tell you where my other parent lives, right? I don't know how we expect a child to hold that up. That's one of the reasons that we didn't do off-site visits. We felt like if there's a protection order in place, you can't expect a child. If you're off-site, you you can't be close enough every minute to hear what's being said. Um, So a lot of visitations happen that way where they go out in the community. We had a lot of families referred to us after something went really awry on those visits. So... For instance, a guy pushing his kid on the swing at the park and then whispers in her ear that he's going to kill her mother and her and her grandfather tonight, right? So the kid slips out, but the monitor, the visit supervisor didn't hear it. Um, but the kid literally was completely traumatized and fell apart. And the visit ends, the, moni- the visit supervisor knew something horrible had happened, but she didn't hear it. So... Amazing. You know, we just what we expect kids to be able to hold up to these these abusers that are so committed to their cause. Um, I think it's an unrealistic expectation. Yet I don't know what the answer is because I have to say I think that most um, most moms would uh, want their kids to have a relationship with their dad. They want them to be safe is the main thing. I used to say to the courts when I've done a lot of training around the courts and different family law settings, and I would say it's not worth worth it for the woman to make this stuff up to get a break from their kids for two hours. Most of them would really like a weekend off from their kids once in a while if it was safe. But it's not safe. And so they'll do whatever they need to do to comply with court orders to make sure he has access because um, if they don't, they are the ones that are punished for it. So, Absolutely. Yep. Uh, I think women lose custody faster than... It, it, by by refusing visitation is the quickest way to lose custody of your kids. And when you're in that situation, you're... Abs- I think that's why a lot of women stay. 
uh, in yeah, an abusive absolutely. relationship because at least if they're there, they can see about the child. You know, they can yes. they can take care yep. of the child. But um, many many was, women will will be planning to leave, and then they find out it's going to unsupervised visitation, and they just change course. They'll stay. Um, uh, and that happens with documented, well-documented domestic violence on file. It doesn't make it into the parenting plans. It doesn't make it into the court record in the dissolution. So um, and I don't know why that is. There's you know, a lot of uh, folks wondering if private law attorneys are re- referring, recommending to women to not bring up the domestic violence because it seems to undermine their credibility with the court so quickly. Yes, um, I, you but, know, I've heard that about um, sex allegations of sexual abuse against the father, mm-hmm. that they're oh, yeah. better off to not talk about it uh, than to bring it up because it immediately uh, flags to people that, oh, she's just being vindictive, she's just making this up, yeah. Um, yeah. even if, if she's not, clearly. Um, yeah. And so I've heard of women being advised to just not talk about the sexual yeah. abuse at all. Um, yep, and we saw a lot of overlap of that in our program as well. There was a lot of allegations of sexual abuse that had happened, but they hadn't been substantiated. So um, and we could see it in the visit. You could see the dynamic um, between – We, in fact, we brought in somebody to train us on, on grooming because we were seeing it happening in front of us. Um, so we needed to be able to document it in a way that kind of painted the picture for the court – and uh, so that if anybody needed to report on it, it was there. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, so what's your overall feeling about domestic violence? You think it's a, or about domestic violence, about supervised visitation? <laughs> Do you think it's a good thing? I struggle with it because I, I felt like we were. I thought we were doing a really good job, and I because we really did intervene. We saw our role as to prevent any more abuse going on or to intervene when we did see it and then to document that um where a lot of we a lot of supervisors just uh see their role as simply to document what's happening rather than to intervene or they might intervene in a really obvious thing but not the subtle things um and there's so there's times when I look back on it that I think what if we had let it go a little further? We'd have more to document that would have been more helpful in the family law case. Um, yeah, because I, using those but then you don't, right. Yeah, you don't want to risk anything getting, having the kid exposed to anything more. So there's there's a dilemma there, right? Because if we're intervening on everything, he's his, yeah. he's getting an opportunity to not have any interventions, right? Because... He knows what we're going to do. Um, that said, they still got interventions all the time. I mean, they really did. <laughs> I would say exactly, here's what we're looking for. If you don't do these things, everything will be fine, and they would just do them. <laughs> um, so, so I Because so they're in that. control, okay? <laughs> That's right, because they're in control, and they really just have no respect for women, most of them. So they just – we were all females. We had one male – um, that the guys just kind of, we had to let him go after a year because the guys just tried so hard to align with him and it was just too hard for him to to hold that yeah. line with them. Um, but but I do think having supervised visitation, if, if people are trained in it and, and understand domestic violence, if, if, if we're clear about this is what we're looking for, these are DV cases, um, then I think it's it's a good thing because the court is going to let them have access to their kids. It's the part that we have to just kind of face head on. It, it's very rare the court is going to say, you don't get to see your kid anymore. Um, and even if the court wasn't wasn't doing that, most of these guys would get access to their kids through their through the survivor anyway because that's part of the way she stays safe too is to comply to some degree. Um, and to keep him having a relationship with his kids, so there's, there's, it's gonna happen, and I think it should be supervised, but only if it's gonna be supervised by a professional with training. If that professional doesn't understand DV and and just writes these glowing reports, uh, Dad was so kind, he loved, he 
hugged the child and gave him a warm greeting, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> that yeah. holds too much weight with the court. I'd rather have Aunt Sue do it, who doesn't have any credibility with the court. So it, it that's where I stand on it. I think it's a really complex issue that if we had training and we all agreed what the training should look like and there was some accountability, that would be great for the provider. But there isn't, and we we have that all these mandated things in place for perpetrator treatment, and that doesn't work. People don't follow the rules there, so I don't know. I think we but just I, need to do a much better job holding batterers accountable for their behavior, and we should all be on the same page and working together. But in order to do that, the people who have you know decision making ability, i.e., the judges, the mm-hmm. lawyers, the guardians ad litem, mm-hmm. need to have an understanding of domestic violence. Yes. And very few that I've run into, not that I've run into that many, but very few Mm -hmm. of them actually have that kind of an understanding. Um, That's true. And again, I I don't understand why it's so hard, although I suppose that we all base our our assumptions and our feelings and our expectations on what we have lived. So if we have never lived it, then it's kind of hard sometimes to really envision that a human being would do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, the, the, one of the main things that I see is that there is an expectation of reasonableness. And yes, with an abuser, you're not, nobody, he's not reasonable. You're not mm-hmm. going to reason with an abuser. He's going to do what right. he wants. Um, so, I don't know, that brings us full circle to how do we train the people who have authority, I guess. Well, yeah. um, I... I, uh, there's a wonderful website out there. Um, we've actually had the author of it on our show, and it's called The Liz Library. And if you're looking it up, you have to have The Liz Library. And she puts, I mean, she's just prolific in her opinions. And she mm-hmm. did an article for her website about supervised uh, visitation. And she mm-hmm. contends that um, it's not good in a lot of ways. Yeah. She says, first of all, supervised visitation cannot continue indefinitely, so what's the point? Um, Violent, controlling parents are not going to change. Uh, Anger management therapies don't work. It's not a child custody solution for abusers. It's not a solution for children who have 5, 10, or 18 years left in their childhoods when that parent will likely go back to court multiple times to try and gain full custody. Right. I, I so. yeah I I think we had families that were with us for five and six years, um, and uh, I don't know what happened to them once we closed. We lost all our funding, so um, you know it, that was really hard to let folks know it's, we're not going to be here anymore. And I I don't know what happened. Um, and but I do think that for some of them, it actually. Uh, gives more opportunity. So there it I I think it's frustrating. The court would view us as a holding tank. It was really clear that you're just seeing this as a place to put them while you figure out what to do, right? And so we were really clear about we're not gonna buy into the urgency. We're not gonna get you a visit tomorrow when you just they'd call us on their way out of the courthouse and think they were gonna come and have a visit with their kids. And we had a whole process that required we're gonna have an intake with each parent, we're gonna meet with the kids, we're gonna really not you're not in the program until we've done this process and accept you into the program. And so um I think it stretched things out a little bit and some of the guys would then kind of slow down a bit. So I would say about 80% of our the the clientele were they'd kind of comply, they they were difficult in the beginning and they'd kind of get into the groove of things and we we'd try to take opportunities to say you're going to be doing this on your own someday. So here's the things you can't be doing, right? These are these are things that are harmful to your kid to put them in the middle of this and it didn't fly. They didn't want to hear from us much, but we tried whenever yeah. we could. Um yeah, so about 80% of them would kind of just go along and, and and they would come to us and maybe they'd graduate on to some other program where they got a visit in the community or something. Um, and I think it's nothing else. It gave the mom an opportunity to start to get back on her feet to some degree. 
um, and just take the stress off that access piece that, okay, he's getting to see the kids, the court's involved. The problem is that the court doesn't follow through on it. So if the guy is acting up and doing things, it's on the survivor to go file something again, and it, it, it's a mess, that part of it. But I think for about 80%, it did offer some slight relief for a while. Um, for 20% of them, they, so I always say 80% of the guys took 20% of our resources, and 20% of the guys took 80% of our resources. <laughs> there were that 20% that they they were just, it was insane. Uh, every day we we were on our toes. It was like a constant chess game to stay on top of what their next move was going to be, every way they were trying to get at their partner. Some of them separated 10 years, divorced 10 years have new families, and they're still, everything is about undermining this survivor, just destroying her credibility any way, shape, or form, making sure that she knows he's uh, he's still in control. They exhausted our resources. So those, I I hope that when we close, they don't get access, but I I, I'm down. I'm looking at file numbers. I'm going to go into the court and start looking some up because I've been thinking about <laughs> it a lot. Because I want to know what happened. But unfortunately, usually they just disappear out of the system because she can't keep it up anymore. She she can't. It's always pro se. If she's got an attorney, her funds run out quickly. I see so many battered women whose attorneys, if they're lucky enough to have an attorney, the attorney quits because the guy's attorney or the guy is so difficult. The attorney doesn't want to deal with him. Um, so there, it's just the family law system is is really difficult, um, and there, we have so much work to do there. Yeah, and I I see that as well. Um, you know the the manipulation that these guys can use, and usually they have more resources than the woman. Not all the time, but but a lot of the time, often enough. And so they will just. And I think that they would rather see their you know, whatever money they have, they'd rather see it just go away completely than to go to her. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. You know, so absolutely. it's yeah, it's it's kind of mind boggling, um, at how single minded some of these men are about, you know, going after um the wife. And I think that it might have something to do with you actually are thinking that you can have some control over me. You know <laughs> how yeah. dare you? Yeah. You know? Um, and I think that's the same way, you know, here in Washington, we had that case several years ago where the uh, man went to court and shot up the place, you know. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I've heard of in many places, actually. Oh, yeah. And I think that they hate the courts so much because finally there's somebody that can make them do something if the court chooses to. And I think, unfortunately, the, tr- the court usually gives them an awful lot of leeway before they finally start slapping their hands. But I think that they just cannot bear the idea that there is actually a higher power <laughs> than them. You know? Yeah, they, yeah. Well, I think it's uh, for my experience of working with so many of the men was that it was more about being having the win. And so, and un- so undermining her credibility, for instance, at intake, I've had guys bring me pictures of the dirty stove to show me what a horrible housekeeper their partner was, or they've got their their ex their ex partner's therapy notes. Like somehow they got their therapy notes, or they're bringing me um, emails to demonstrate how crazy she is, or um, they've got they're telling me about her sexual history that she was abused or molested or whatever, right? And I would be saying this is. I'm not talking to you about her. I'm asking you about you. Yeah. How did you get ordered here, right? But the focus was always, always, always on her. And so what happens, what I see in the court when I'm there and when I'm looking, I've been doing a little bit of a research project, helping on another project, looking at protection orders. And so I've been reading a lot of p- petitions for protection orders. And you can see that she's documented really clear stuff about that that meets the requirements for a protection order and yet the court asks him to respond in court and he shifts the focus back on her again the dv gets pushed his behavior he manages to not even address his own behavior mm-hmm. and so the court needs to get better at holding you know holding the line with him sir 
I'm not asking you about her. I'm asking you to explain this, right? But yeah. they, these guys are just masters at diverting attention away from themselves. Well, you know, I have always said that um, politicians are very good. If you ever pay attention to a, a campaigning mm-hmm. politician and he's asked a question, he will answer the question he wants to answer. You know, <laughs> right, he, exactly. answer, he answers any question. You know, he'll turn it around so he can give the answer that he's well prepared exactly. to give. You know, um, yep. and yep. You know, I, sometimes I, I work with students sometimes, and I always say, look, if you don't know what to say on there, you do know about this. So just tie and tie it into this, like the politicians do. <laughs> yeah, um, <right>. and <laughs> at least you'll get some credit. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that, you know, I, in some regard, it's the same way with the abusers. They can manipulate. I mean, that they are masters of manipulation. And they can divert attention. And if the accusations are strong enough, then the judge, the guardian ad litem, whatever, will think, wow, if there's any merit to this, I better jump on this. And they've completely forgotten the fact that they were asking a different question completely. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah, they're pros. They're absolute pros. It happens it. all the time. I had one guy that had what. So we also had some visiting moms at our program, but they were battered women. They we never. I never saw a man come to the center afraid of his partner. That was never my experience. Um, the the women that we ended up having as visiting parents were generally there was mental health or substance abuse issues that had happened, um, but they all had had a protection order against the father the father of their children at some point. So we still worked with them to keep them safe during the visits. And um, and I had one guy that he, he, he had won. You know, he had the kid. He had mastered humiliating this woman in many ways. She'd been remarried, and what happened was that she had married a guy that ended up with a conviction of sex, child sex abuse, not her children, mm-hmm. um, but... So he that's how he ended up getting custody, even though he had a lengthy documented history of of abusing her, physically assaulting her. And so they'd been apart 10 years. He'd been remarried, had new family. Um, he, he kept finding ways to not get where she couldn't see her kid, which this doesn't happen to women. I'm sorry, but they... they <laughs> if women don't let the their the father see the kids, they are held in contempt pretty darn yes. quickly. But the men, I see these orders go through that says, well, they can have a visit once a month. You never see that on a woman's order. So he, this guy lived on the other side of the state. He man, he was able to move out of the jurisdiction. I don't know how he managed that. He would find ways to not let this mother see the kid. She was uh, poor, had a difficult time with transportation, had all kinds of issues in her life, and some substance abuse issues that began to develop after all of this. And uh, finally, the court said, "Well, there's this program because we were for we we had a sliding scale for two dollars you could visit, right? So we she could afford us." So they ordered him to come over once a week from the other side of the mountains to bring this kid so she could have the visits. And so he brings us this list of all these rules we have to in, uh, impose on her. <laughs> That's written into his parenting plan, like that she can't wear perfume and she can't wear makeup when she comes. And we're like, absolutely not. That's, if we don't follow your rules, we have our rules we're the the program. We're deciding what works at our agency. You will not. And and so he kept trying to to argue with us about that and find all these ways and threatening us with court actions and all these things. And and it got to the point where we couldn't even speak to him anymore. He wouldn't take our calls because he would get so upset. So he would only fax responses to us. And so it's ridiculous. <laughs> so then one day. He calls me and he says to me, Miss Parker, I realize why you and I are having such problems. And oh. I'm saying, okay, Mr. So-and-so, go ahead and let me know. And he says, well, because I had a restraining order against you once before um, when you were harassing my friend. <laughs> and, and it was crazy. And I, in this moment, I found myself scanning my memory. <laughs> And it was such an eye opener about like this is her life with him, right? Like even me, I he what he was trying to do was establish a conflict of interest so that we couldn't serve him. Yeah. 
we just wouldn't buy for it. We we served them and and eventually he convinced the daughter to refuse to come anymore. But and then he convinced the mom to walk away. He said it's really harming her, and she said oh, I want to do what's best for her. So she walked away. But ten years, huh. he, ten years, and he was as and excited, I'm the, sure. And the thing that gets me about that is you saw just a tiny bit of what that family yes. lived with, yes. of this behavior and this control. He convinces her to walk away. She's probably beaten down to a pulp. Yeah, oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. that child is then left to live in that environment. Yeah. The child yep. is left to deal with him all on her yep. own. And, yep. you know, for a strong child, that's going to make a huge conflict. But for a weak child, it's going to be uh, a terrible, terrible life event yeah. for her. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, ugh, ugh. Um, anyway, let's go back to what Liz had to say. She yes. said the other thing about uh, that even if there is some uh, kind of extended supervised visitation, then that chains the victim family to that same geographical error um, mm-hmm. area. And so the mom can't relocate for a job or support and, you know, she yeah. doesn't have parenting help. I, I think a lot of women who are single, if they have the option, they'll go back closer to their, their families. Um, yeah. to get some support, you know. Um, yeah. but, uh, well, I would argue that that's, I would argue that's the, um, that's the case regardless of whether there's uh, supervised visitation or not. I think when there's a family law case going on, you, you're, you're stuck. You, it's really difficult to leave the area. Yeah. I mean, that's just what I've seen working with a, a lot of women. If you, if you have children, I mean, if you don't have kids, you, it, it's a lot easier to escape. It's hard to get out the door, but it's a lot easier to stay out the door. Um, if you have kids, you're chained to this person um, yeah. by family law. So yeah, unless you're really, really lucky, um, you know, really you, lucky, you are chained to him until your last child. Even if, even if there aren't mm-hmm. children, you know, there are usually financial mm-hmm. things where you yes. know you get bogged down and they stretch it out for years as long as they possibly mm-hmm. can. Yeah, uh, just maintain that control. Um, I yeah. had a child say to me once, Dad is like an octopus. You get one tentacle mm-hmm. off and another one comes up and wraps around you. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's a really great metaphor. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, think what those children are living with. Um, it, it just, eh. and at least if mom is there, she can, you know, kind of watch out for the child as best she can. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a sad situation. Uh, and I agree with you. No matter what the situation, if you are divorcing or leaving, uh, you don't even have to mm-hmm. have been married to have children. If you have children, you're tied. You're absolutely tied there. Yeah, um, I recently another... heard of a case where the guy just, uh, he had a criminal conviction and a permanent, I think a, a like a, Till the youngest child is 18, a, a no contact order, protection, a protection order, no contact with the kids till they're 18. But he still has parental rights. He still gets their school records. Uh, he still gets, yeah. So, um, so even then, even and he, you know, in he has been convicted of serious domestic violence enough to get a, a lengthy protection order and and still has parental rights. How how can I had a, a judge on my show once, um, and I asked her to come back, but she didn't want to, and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> we had a lot of callers, you know, talking about their particular cases, and I think all of our callers were very um, rational, and, you know, uh, they weren't hysterical. Um, I would have been, but they weren't. Um, mm-hmm. But I asked her off air, I don't understand how judges can give custody to men who have documented histories of abuse. I can kind of understand if none of it's documented, because how do mm-hmm. they know for sure? And, yeah. um, you know, so, I mean, I can kind of understand where they're coming from on that one. But if there's documented abuse, excuse me, I had to wet my whistle there, um, how can you just turn over the child to that person? And she said, um, well, there you have two people in front of you. One is frantic and beside herself and, you know, uh, very emotional, and she clearly can't even take care of her own life, let alone that of a child. 
So mm-hmm. on the other hand, you have a man standing there who has it together, and he has his yeah. you know his plan, and he has his finances set, and so um, you know we'll if the domestic vi- this is, these are her words. So if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we'll give custody mm. to the father. Mm. And Tragic. I immediately, you know, how much, how bad is that bad? You know, right. I mean, how, how what do you have? Terms, is, right. Yeah. Yes. Who qualifies for not that bad, you know? Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, um, you know, really, you really don't understand yeah. that she's frantic because somebody is trying to get her children away from her. You know, yeah. I mean, that doesn't strike you as a reason to be panicky. Um, right. And clearly they don't don't understand domestic domestic violence because he's in control because that's what he does. He controls. <laughs> right. So, of course, right. he's doing it very well for you, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's just mind-boggling to me. Anyway, it is. Um, Liz also says that once supervised professionals or institutions invest in fa- uh, facility and marketing to do this work, they become stakeholders whose immediate concern will be the need to pay their bills and salaries, further their business interests, and expand. Now, I do mm-hmm. agree with her on that, that any mm-hmm. bureaucracy, once it, you know, whether it's a nonprofit or a governmental agency, once that institution is formed, then if they want to keep doing the work, they have to keep paying the bills and salaries and all that yep. other stuff. Yep. So yep. by definition, that has to be secondary to the actual work that they were formed to do. Um, so that's one of her criticisms. But quite frankly, I don't see how you could get past that. Um, I mean, well, that was to, one of yeah, it. that was yes, that was one of our biggest struggles because we kept getting pushed to to you know, have the clients pay the fees in this way. And I knew that if you, that they'll just use that as an excuse to not use the service and the court will buy that. I mean, we did a safety audit years ago and that was what the court said. One of the biggest barriers to ordering supervised visitation was the cost. So typically when we started back in 2005, the common, the average price of supervised visitation here in the area was $75 an hour. We had visits for two to five dollars, right? Um, yeah. And we insisted on that, but but we were funded federally funded. We had a really good grant because we were a demonstration site. We worked for the city of Kent, so we had good wages and good pay. And I required everybody to have come from a, a DV a DV background, and so we kind of had the cream of the crop um, in for when we started, then as funding decreased and eventually disappeared, we were fighting at, with every other service you know, agency trying to get the same funding dollars because we tried to keep it public funding. And uh, because of that, we didn't want to rely on, um, have to worry about paying the bills. We wanted uh, sure. to be a line item in a budget, right? And so as that went on, we took my staff was amazing. We everybody took pay cuts. Everybody gave up their benefits. We went down. We cut a day out of the week. We did everything we could to stay afloat. And then finally, it got to the point where I just had to say, "No more. We can't do good work if we can't even pay our own bills." Right? If the staff is feeling stressed and burned out. Um, and you're asking us to to do this work, the same work, on less and less dollars, and we can't be we can't provide safety anymore if we don't have time to do a thorough intake and really work with the clients. Because one of the things we know we learned very quickly that if we took time to try to relate to the men, to spend time with them, to talk to them about their date, you know, like how was your how's work going, they yeah. behaved better. It was safer for everybody. And so when you've got a waiting list and people pounding at the door, it's really hard to take the time with the clients that you have to do good work. And everybody we had was in crisis, right? So we also had a ongoing safety check-ins with the moms where we'd get, just go hang out with them and the, while the visit was going on, some another staff person would just go hang out with the moms and just check in, how's it been going? And we we were not able to do that anymore. And it just got, well, if we keep trying to save it, um, we can't do the work. It, yeah. it becomes all about the funding, and you just can't. You can't function that way. Yeah. 
Well, I want to. Yeah. I look looking at our time. I can't believe the time is almost up. But um, the other critic, another criticism that she has, which I, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of alarms me, is she says over the last twenty years, supervised visitation centers have been established by abuser lobbies and parental mm-hmm. alienation proponents, mm-hmm. and um, they seem to have opened up their visitation centers, and of course, the uh, people who believe in the parental alienation, and and Mm -hmm. basically these people are abusers, and if they're supervising the visitation, you know, wow, I I kind of fear for these children, quite frankly. Um, So that is a big thing. How would somebody, and I, uh, how would somebody who requires a visitation center go about finding one? Does the court have lists, and if so, is there any evaluator or any evaluation that's available? No. Uh, the court had a list for a while, but it doesn't have any. We we tried really hard to get that in place to say, um, you know, the court should see where the place is, know what they're ordering, um, but that's not the case. There's a directory here in the area. There's a, there is a program here in the area that is run by Father's Rights guys, and they're all volunteer men who do the visits. It's pretty frightening. Um, and that agency is part of this directory service, and they actually called themselves us for the longest. They, they advertised as safe havens, um, and we challenge them on that and they've refused to change it when we changed our name to safe and sound they changed their name to safe and sound on the web are you even though it's not there right so it's i i i think people use the supervised visitation network and um they have some agreed upon standards but still i when i never make referrals because i haven't found any that i feel confident in um so I have written an order for the court to use for supervised visitation that that there's safety requirements built into the order, and and that way if those things aren't being met, it gives the survivor an opportunity to come back to court and say, well, the provider isn't doing these things that are on the order. Um, it's just basic, like keeping the parents apart, knowing where the visits are occurring at all times, being aware of any protection orders and having them on file, all that kind of, just some basic safety standards. But the court never uses it. They agreed to use it. They have it. Um, and it just gets stuffed aside and they just write supervised visitation on the protection order. And it's an, it's a huge dilemma. Um, so yeah it's, i don't I don't know what we do about that, and there is no monitoring of of the programs. I would love to do some work on that issue that's uh, if I could find a way to write a grant to get to get funding to actually go um train judges around the state around oh. why they should be thinking about this. Well, and I mentioned this judge that I had on the show a, a couple of months ago. She um, was from Colorado, and I actually scoured places around the country to find a judge who was aware of domestic violence. And she was highly recommended to me as somebody mm-hmm. who really gets mm-hmm. it. And yet mm-hmm. she's the one who made that comment about the demeanor yeah. of, the, of the woman. Yeah, yeah. So clearly, I mean, in, in her circles, she really got it, but... In domestic violence circles, she didn't get it at all. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that judges and I also think attorneys need to be oh, trained. Absolutely. Uh, yep. You know, so many attorneys. So I always say that, you know, I got I have to live long enough to figure out a way to t- train all the judges, all the attorneys, <laughs> and <laughs> and all the Don't psychologists. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have come to the end of our time. I can't believe it. Would you like to come back sometime, Tracy, and we can keep talking? Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah Great. Anytime. Um, I try to end our show with a quote. I had a really, um, really hard time finding a quote that was applicable to this. But I actually found a child care resource and referral uh, website, and there. One of their comments in their mission statement is caring for children in a child care setting, which would I would 
consider as like mm-hmm. safe havens, is mm-hmm. different from caring for one's own children in the child's home. Settings are yeah. usually made up of several children. Well, that doesn't really apply. Anyway, the the point is yeah. that it's hard to find anything that really addresses any kind of legal supervised visitation. Tracy, yeah. thank yeah. you so much for being with us. And as always, if you uh, missed our show live, you can go back any time of the week. Uh, on www.blogtalkradio.com slash three women, three ways. I'm Heather Stark. Please join us next week.